Right, hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327, uh, 1945 to present. I'll give you all a second right now to go to Moodle and check out the PowerPoint. So there you go. Got your PowerPoint ready to go. All right, I'm ready. Let's do this. Okay, so today's lecture is on Watergate and what came after. Um, I know the dates there say 1974 to 1980, but we could really go back to 1972. That's when the water Watergate break-in was, and it has to do with the election of 1972. So, let's go over. Okay, go over one slide. You will see the election of 1972 between Richard Nixon and George McGovern. Uh, Nixon is coming into 72 fairly strong. He's had a lot of success with foreign policy. Uh, the country is looking pretty good domestically. So Nixon is definitely coming in from a position of strength. Uh, the Democrats are still looking pretty inept right now. Uh, the Democratic nominee is George McGovern, who was not the most popular choice. Uh, he's able to get the nomination pretty much through surviving. He's a very far-left liberal. He's so liberal he is alienating uh, parts of his own party. Uh, one Democratic senator says off the record of McGovern that if voters find out that he's for, quote, abortion, amnesty, and legalization of marijuana, which got turned into abortion, amnesty, and acid, they would abandon him in numbers. The, the good Catholics, the good blue-collar Democratic voters. Uh, the senator who actually says this is Thomas Eagleton. Remember the name, because it's about to become important. Now, George McGovern is also very anti-war. He's anti-Vietnam War, which, remember this time... Nixon is still negotiating uh, the end of the war within Paris. However, he's so anti-war that some ask, is he like a hippie or something? Does he believe in the military at all? Uh, he had been a bomber during World War II. Well, not a bomber, but he, he'd been involved in World War II. However, he was anti-war very much. Um, McGovern's main competition is another George. Uh, George Wallace is running again. He's running again as a Democrat, and he's actually getting real momentum, even in the North this time around. There is a chance that um, that uh, George Wallace might actually do something here. So if you go over a couple sides, you'll see what happens to Wallace whenever he is in Laurel, Maryland. He is uh, shot. Somebody tries to do an assassination attempt on Wallace. Um, even though Wallace actually won that primary, he is paralyzed. He spends the rest of his life in a wheelchair. He is paralyzed. Um, Wallace kind of becomes a political non-figure after this. He does live until the late uh, early 90s. I believe he dies around 92. Uh, later in life, he would claim that he is like, you know, he, he has repented from all of his uh, segregation ways. But pretty much after this point, he is no longer a real threat for the democratic process. So McGovern is the candidate. He's not exactly... Uh, getting a lot of support within his own party. He's not exactly uh, getting Reagan endorsements. And a lot has to do with his vice presidential choice, who is ironically Thomas Eagleton, the one who said off the record that uh, McGovern was for abortion, amnesty, and acid, even though he never said acid. That's pretty much everybody associates it with. Uh, Eagleton is his vice presidential nominee. And during the campaign, it comes out that Eagleton had struggled with depression. Uh, throughout his life, he had struggled with depression. He still had depression. Uh, going to the point where he actually even got shock therapy for, uh, for expression. No, for depression. He got shock therapy for depression. Now, mental health issues are, are nothing new. They're nothing to be ashamed of. But at this time period, the country's in a different place. The country still thinks there's a stigma attached to mental illness, uh, particularly depression. 
Uh, the fact the fact that uh, Eagleton had gotten uh, shock therapy before was uh, not not comforting to some voters. And even though McGovern says, you know, I support Eagleton a thousand percent, three days after this comes out, um, Eagleton is dropped from the ticket. Now that's done in part because of Eagleton's own doctors, his own psychiatrists say, hey. Uh, if this guy ever becomes president, his depression might put the country in danger. He might do something uh, out of sorts. If his depression uh, has a good control over it. Once again, uh, it's a different time. There's nothing to be ashamed of if you struggle with depression. But that being said, the country kind of drops him. Now, McGovern really wants to get Ted Kennedy to be his running mate. Uh, Ted Kennedy is the youngest brother of the, uh, the Kennedy family. Uh, his older brothers were Robert Kennedy and uh, John Kennedy, also, you know, Joe Jr. Kennedy, who also died. <coughs> and McGovern is trying super hard to get Kennedy to become his running mate. Hang on, let me... Sorry, my throat was a little dry. I had to cough. I'm fine. I just had to get some water. Okay, so he's really trying to get Ted Kennedy. Uh, Ted Kennedy, there was even rumors that he was going to run for the Democratic nomination. You know, he's another Kennedy. However, Kennedy is refusing. Uh, Kennedy's kind of squirrely about it. Edward Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he does not want to be in the national spotlight, primarily because of what happens in 1969 in Chappaquiddick. Um, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories. I will say this. Uh, Kennedy was driving a car, went off a bridge. He swam away. Uh, his passenger, who wasn't wearing any clothes, uh, drowned and died. Uh, there are rumors that you can pretty much fill in right there. It's it's a little too scandalous. He doesn't want to have it litigated every day of the campaign, so he refuses. So instead, McGovern goes with an adjacent Kennedy, uh, Sergeant Shriver. Uh, Shriver is a Kennedy by marriage. He married Eunice Kennedy, who is a Kennedy sister. Uh, she's a sister of you know John Kennedy, um, you know Robert Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, all them Kennedys. He later founds, like, the Peace Corps. He later founds uh, Job Corps, all those different corps. Uh, his daughter is actually Maria Shriver, who you may not know her name now, but for the longest time she was married to Arnold Schwarzenegger, which makes Arnold Schwarzenegger a Kennedy by marriage by marriage. Uh, McGovern feels like he doesn't really have a choice. There's really no chance for McGovern to really do anything. Um, McGovern thinks maybe because they lower the voting age to 18, this is the first time that they've had the election after they lower the voting age, maybe he might get some younger votes, but in all reality, even he recognizes he's probably not going to win. He's a very, very far-left far liberal. But in spite of this, in spite of this, Nixon, if you, I'm sorry, I'm not doing a very good job of keeping you on track with the, uh, with the PowerPoints, Nixon feels vulnerable. Uh, a couple of years earlier, uh, there was something called the Pentagon Papers that were leaked. I believe that was in 1971. Uh, the Pentagon Papers were leaked to uh, a newspaper. Basically, they talk about the uh, policy the U.S. had for Vietnam, mainly with the Johnson and Kennedy administrations, showing, sign of the, so, showing some of the ineptitude, showing some of the fact that maybe the government didn't have as good of a job as they say they might. Uh, this doesn't really impact Nixon directly. Uh, Nixon's not really talked about too much of the Pentagon Papers. However, it is shown that there is leaks. Uh, there are leakers within the White House, and Nixon does not like that. Nixon is kind of afraid of leaks. He doesn't like the idea of it. So he gets a group together to plug the leaks. Uh, they call themselves the Plumbers because they, they plug the leaks. Uh, probably the most famous of these, if you go over, is G. Gordon Liddy. There's G. Gordon Liddy. He of the mustache will later have a bald head. 
Liddy becomes uh, somewhat infamous or famous, whatever, um, mainly because of his image, but also he, he's very upfront with, you know, he's willing to do whatever it takes, uh, whatever political dirty work, whatever dirty tricks might be necessary. Now, this group, the Plumbers, would later kind of make it to a bigger, larger group called the Committee to Re-elect the President. Uh, the Committee to Re-elect the President, or CREEP, or the CRP, whichever you want to call it, is, uh, it's not the nicest organization. Uh, they are well-versed in dirty tricks. They're well-versed in, uh, you know, doing all sorts of not-great things. They have slush funds. Uh, they're doing stuff basically to help Nixon get re-elected. Uh, somebody who's an early, not exactly a member, but somebody who does work for him is a 20-year-old Roger Stone, who, if you pay attention to the news, he's been in the news lately. Uh, he makes a donation to McGovern's campaign under the name of the American Socialist Party and then sends it to a newspaper guy. Uh, he's not very high up on this, but Roger Stone really likes Nixon for some weird reason. Anyway, uh, let's get to the election for just a second. The election itself is a bloodbath, a complete and total bloodbath. If you look at it, uh, Nixon destroys an electoral college, one of the largest electoral college victories of all time. Uh, he gets 97% of the electoral college vote pretty much winning every single state except for Massachusetts, which in this time period, Massachusetts was viewed as the most liberal state in the world. Uh, for the popular vote, Nixon gets about 60% of the popular vote. It's really no chance McGovern actually has. It's clear that the country likes him. But we got to go back a little bit. You know, Nixon's coming in. He should have had a very easy election. But if you go back to 1972, in June of 1972, June 17th, 1972, uh, the CRP, the Committee to Re-Elect the President, the Creepers, whatever you want to call them, they're engaging in dirty tricks. And that night, a group of five individuals with ties to the Creep, even though they're not actually members, they're arrested trying to break into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate Hotel and Office Complex. Uh, you see a picture right there of the Watergate. That's, that's the hotel. Um, I believe it's still there. And if you go over one more, you'll see the burglars. Uh, most of these guys are Cuban nationals. Uh, one of them was involved in Gay Bay of Pigs. Uh, they're carrying a lot of cash and a lot of recording equipment, like a lot of cash and a suspicious amount of recording equipment. It's clear that these are not just ordinary robbers. These are people with means. These are people with a background. And it's really clear these are not ordinary robbers. These are not just five random guys breaking into an office complex. It's clear they were wanting to do something. You know, they have all this money, they have all this wiretapping equipment. It was clear they wanted to tap the Democratic uh, National Committee headquarters. Now, it's an election year, and the story actually comes out, and at first it's kind of a no story. Um, have the Nixon campaign really, the Nixon White House really come in front of it? They probably would have survived. Um, there's an old saying about Watergate, it wasn't a crime, it was a cover-up. That's purely on display here with Nixon. Because at first, the Nixon White House does everything it can to distance itself. And they start to try to cover things up. Uh, the, the, the Creepers get half a million dollars from Nixon's re-election campaign and send it to the burglars, pretty much to ensure their silence. So Nixon's able to win a re-election pretty easily, but he doesn't really have much of a honeymoon because in January of 73, only, I don't think Nixon had even been inaugurated yet, uh, the judge for these burglars is convinced that there's more than they're not saying. The judge is convinced that these burglars know more, they're, they're with somebody, and basically he is threatening them with the maximum penalty. Uh, 
you know, generally for crimes, you have a minimum and a maximum penalty. Um, the judge is threatening him with everybody, hoping for they get them to talk. One of them does talk, uh, James McCord. And it really all starts to unravel. McCord says, yeah, you know, this person, the committee to re-elect the president, um, told me to do this. Uh, he, they arranged for like half a million dollars to so be given to the account, give area silence. And now it's pretty obvious that the Nixon White House is engaged in dirty tricks. So a grand jury is convened. Uh, the Senate begins to investigate. And uh, Nixon's White House counsel, John Dean, was, was fired. Uh, he was implicated. Basically, Nixon's trying to throw everybody he can at this, so it'll all stick with him. Uh, John Dean even does a little bit of prison time. Uh, Nixon's first attorney general even resigns under pressure. Like I said, Nixon is throwing everybody under the bus, hoping that this scandal will go away. But the hearings begin. The Senate starts doing things. And during the Senate hearings, uh, an offhand comment was made by, by just kind of a minor aide. Uh, just a minor... Uh, just, a, just an aide, just somebody not really high on the Nixon White House. He said basically, oh yeah, well, you know, Nixon does have a lot of tapes. To which the Senate's like, wait, what, tapes? They're like, yeah. Nixon records everything in the Oval Office. Now, Nixon said he was recording everything for his memoirs. Um, Nixon would leave the White House officially one day, write a book about how he's president. He wants to have good memories for it. Uh, more than likely, it was so he could get find out what everybody was saying about it. Nixon was pretty paranoid. Nixon was convinced that uh, people were talking behind his back. Now, uh, to be fair, Nixon was not the one who first installed the recording equipment in the White House. That was Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson actually put the first recording equipment in the Oval Office. However, Nixon was the one to use it all the time, extensively. Now, when Nixon hears about this, he is frustrated. He thinks that the uh, independent counsel, guy by the name of Archibald Cox, who had been appointed, uh, kind of like the Mueller or something of his own time period, or the Ken Starr when we get into wa- uh, the Clinton stuff, uh, Nixon orders his new Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, to fire Cox. Basically to fire Cox. And Richardson says, this is, a, this is abuse of power. This is a obstruction of justice. I don't want to do that. And Nixon tries to force him. Richardson refuses so much that he resigns. And then Nixon goes to... Um, Richardson's deputy, the deputy attorney general, who likewise refuses to do it and also resigns. Uh, finally, the third in line does indeed fire Cox. And this all kind of happens in a very short period of time. As you see, uh, this is called this, what's called the Saturday Night Massacre, where pretty much Nixon's looking really guilty. Like, why would somebody go with this much? You know, the attorney general is not going to be involved in this cover-up. It causes so much outcry that Nixon is forced to release some tapes. If you go over one more slide, you'll hear the tapes. Well, you're not going to hear the tapes. You'll see the tapes. Uh, the tapes are bad. Even the ones that are released do not make Nixon look really good. Uh, the transcripts show Nixon as, as paranoid. Uh, he swears a lot. In fact, you know, expletive deleted was probably the most common thing you'll see. Um, he's anxious. He doesn't talk nice about people. And those are just, like, the ones that look good for Nixon. Some of the other ones make Nixon look not that great. And one tape, which was recorded just a little bit before the break-in, has a very conspicuous 18-minute gap. There's an 18-minute gap where they more than likely discussed the break-in. And Nixon's secretary claimed, you know what, I, I, I did it, 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 was my, it was my fault, I accidentally erased it. 
And whenever she was pressed by reporters about how does one erase the tape, she couldn't really do it. She couldn't replicate the motions. And so it's looking pretty fishy. Maybe she just fell on the sword for Nixon. Now to make, uh, as if this wasn't bad enough, there's a completely unrelated scandal going on involving Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew. Now, Spiro Agnew, in a, honest to God, completely unrelated scandal, uh, there are allegations that he took bribes from contractors while he was governor of Maryland. And even more damning, there was talk that he had even done so while he was vice president. Now, the idea of the vice president of America taking bribes is um, unsettling, to say the least, especially when the Nixon White House is already under enough scrutiny. Now, Agnew never debates these charges. He actually pleads no contest. He pleads no contest and resigns as vice president. This happens in the autumn of 1973. Uh, All this financial scandal for Agnew put Nixon's own finances into... um, into question. And whenever Nixon's finances are looked at, they do show some irregularities, mainly doing with taxes. Now, Nixon tries to defend himself. Nixon famously goes on TV and announces, I I am not a crook. Uh, That's my horrible Nixon impersonation. But does not exactly spark confidence. Uh, This also puts Nixon in an awkward position of having to pick a new vice president. Remember, the election had just happened. And so Nixon picks a new vice president. Uh, he, he appoints Gerald Ford. Uh, Gerald Ford, he had been in Congress for a while. He was actually a standout in high school fo- uh, college, in college football for the University of Michigan. But uh, he's not exactly the most dynamic individual. He's not charismatic. Uh, picking Gerald Ford does not exactly help Nixon demographically. There are a lot of questions about why exactly Ford was chosen. And this also puts Ford in an interesting position because he had never been elected vice president. It's about to get more interesting for for Ford. However, the issue of the tapes keeps coming up. Um, Nixon did not release all the tapes. He just released some of the tapes. And in the summer of 47, uh, the Supreme Court actually decides on this. Uh, Nixon keeps refusing to give over the tapes, saying it's it's executive privilege. However, the Supreme Court unanimously, unanimously decides that since this is a criminal matter, executive privilege does not apply. Uh, Nixon cannot cite executive privilege, um, and this is decided unanimously. Uh, Once this comes out, almost immediately, the House of Representatives starts drawing up articles of impeachment, primarily for obstruction of justice. Um, It's pretty obvious that Nixon is engaged in obstruction of justice, primarily when one of the later tapes that comes out after the Supreme Court decision Show has Nixon saying on tape to get the CIA to block the FBI's investigation of the Watergate break-in. Um, this is clear obstruction of justice and abuse of power. If, if you're getting the CIA to interfere with another government agency, that is, that is a clear and obvious abuse of power. It becomes pretty obvious to Republicans that Nixon is dead weight, Nixon needs to resign, uh, Nixon is going to be impeached. Now, Nixon never actually gets the chance to be impeached. If you go over, you will see that he indeed resigns. Uh, there is no doubt that Nixon would have been removed from office. Uh, the Republicans in the Senate, they weren't the majority, but they were a decent number. Remember, you have to have two-thirds majority to get a, um, an impeachment. It was pretty obvious that the Republicans are going to vote against Nixon. So Nixon resigns on August 9th, 1974. 
Now, it's interesting because the Constitution says nothing about what you're supposed to do to have a president resign. Uh, Nixon literally wrote a note that said, I hereby resign the office of president uh, effective tomorrow at noon. And everybody's like, oh, okay, I, I, I guess we have to do that now. So the president resigns, Nixon resigns. Uh, he announces his resignation, really given no apology. Uh, he doesn't say he's sorry. He says mistakes were made, but he doesn't apologize for them. Uh, likewise, he says he acted in, quote, the best interests of the country. And that pretty much does it for Nixon for now. Um, after being president, he doesn't do too, too much. Uh, you'll go over one more. There he is leaving on the helicopter, giving his famous salute. Uh, that, that about does it for Richard Nixon. He is pretty much a pariah after this. Uh, generally, after somebody is president, they're pretty popular within the uh, party. They'll do fundraising, things like that. Uh, Nixon never actually does that. He's very much a pariah. He is kind of on the outs of the Republican Party. Uh, whenever he does die in 96, it's a little bit of a minor thing. Uh, I don't think he gets the big state funeral like other presidents have. So in his address, if you go over one more, you'll see President Ford. Uh, in his first address as president, pretty much the day after Nixon resigns, Ford announces that, quote, our national nightmare is over. Now, when Ford comes into power, he is acting as though things are going to settle down, but it's becoming pretty clear that Nixon should face criminal charges. Um, as president of the United States, you do have a bit of immunity. However, once you're out of office, you have no more immunity. And since John Dean, who was Nixon's White House counsel, was already in jail, it was looking pretty clear that Nixon would also be going to jail. Now, Ford had not talked too much about having a pardon before. Uh, whenever reporters talked about it, he shut it down. Oh, I should mention, Ford's in a very interesting position. He is the only person to become president who is neither elected president nor vice president. He just becomes president. And most of America is okay with him. They're, they're ready to move on from Nixon. But on September 8th, 1974, so less than a month after Nixon resigns, Ford issues a, quote, full, free, and absolute pardon of Richard Nixon. Go over one page, you'll see that. For anything Nixon might have done wrong. Remember, Nixon had not been charged with anything yet. Nixon, generally with pardons, you have to be accused of a crime and convicted of a crime. Um, Ford goes a step further and pretty much gives Nixon absolution for anything he might have done as president. Now, Ford claimed he does this to spare the country of what would have been a very long and partisan fight with Nixon's legal dealings. And in some case, Ford might be onto something. I mean, legal proceedings do take quite a while. Um, it would pretty much undermine his presidency, uh, Ford's presidency, if every day you're seeing Richard Nixon, you know, in court, being accused of stuff, having Richard Nixon go under oath. Uh, Ford claims he does that to spare the country all the damage. However, other people don't feel the same way. Remember, Ford was never elected president, and it becomes a very common conspiracy theory that the only reason that Nixon picked Ford was because he was a stuffed shirt. He was somebody who would go along with what Nixon wanted, and in, in particular, he gave Ford the presidency, which is something Ford would have never gotten on his own merit, in exchange for giving Nixon a pardon. Uh, when this is announced, Ford's press secretary resigns immediately. Uh, likewise, uh, his approval ratings crash down. They go down to about a third. Ford never has very high approval ratings as president. Now, Ford was never a very charismatic politician. Probably the best quote he ever had 
was, quote, I'm a Ford, not a Lincoln, which is kind of a pun, a double, it's a play on words, because he's acknowledging, you know, he's a base model car. He is not a Ford. Uh, he is not a Lincoln. He is a Ford. You know, he's the base model. Don't expect anything too fancy. But also, he's not like Abraham Lincoln. He's not going to be a dynamic Republican speaker. Uh, Ford's tenure of office was never very stable. A lot of things start happening during Ford's tenure, which have been looming for a while, but they really come into play. Uh, in particular, the economy. Uh, the economy of other countries starts getting better. Remember, from the beginning of this class, we said that the U.S. was the only manufacturing power because everybody else had been pretty much ravaged by World War II. Likewise, when dealing with communist countries, one of the most popular things to do is try to prop up their capitalism, prop up their factories, so that they can, you know, make money and not be communist. Now, the problem is the economies of these other countries start getting very strong. Uh, Germany and Japan in particular have both, well, West Germany and Japan have recovered very well from the war, and uh, Japan in particular is looking like an economic threat. Likewise, uh, the, the financial system, the U.S. goes off the gold standard, which makes currency be more valued in relation to other currencies, which economists like because they think it's more accurate to supply and demand, but it also makes the U.S. dollar less strong. Now, because the dollar wasn't as strong as it once was, uh, this undermined the American economy. Now, remember, since 45, since this class began, America has had an amazingly strong economy because we're the only ones really producing stuff. But because we've been supporting other countries and saying, hey, you can make your other things, they get strong as well, and they start to challenge the United States. This is keenly felt with oil. Go over one slide, you'll see the oil crisis, lines of cars... Uh, oil, particularly Texas oil, had been something very stable for the United States. Um, America had remained fairly energy independent. Texas oil was something that was stable. It could support any challenge. Our domestic oil production was ready to go at a moment's notice. However, in the 60s, OPEC is formed. Uh, OPEC is a cartel, uh, is a, uh, cartel of oil-producing countries. That's pretty much exactly what OPEC stands for. The Opium Produce Oil Petroleum Exporting Countries is what, uh, sorry, Oil and Petroleum Exporting Cartel is what OPEC stands for. And it's a lot of Middle Eastern countries who go really cheap. They go really cheap. They undercut the American market. And then they stop all shipments to the United States. Texas oil is not able to produce the way it once was able to. It's only recently that U.S. oil production has gone back to what it was before. And the rise of gas jacks up. Uh, before the oil crisis in the 70s, uh, gas was about 30 cents a gallon. It quadruples almost overnight to about $1.20 a gallon, which I know to you sounds great, but when you think about it, the price of gas multiplied by four. So if you go to the gas tank tomorrow and it's $8 a ga gallon, that might be an issue. Likewise... People were running out of oil. Gas companies are running out of oil. Um, gas stations are running out of oil. So you have these long lines. And this would cause panics. People would wait in line for the oil. Fights would break out. Uh, U.S. cars were not exactly the most conservative with, um, with gas use. Uh, they, were, they would use tons of gas. Uh, nobody cared about gas mileage in this time period. That is one of the reasons why Toyota comes on so strong in this time period is that Toyota actually cares about gas mileage. So this crisis doesn't really last that long, but what does last long is the fact that U.S. confidence has been shaken. 
Since the end of the war, the U.S. had been economically prosperous, and there was general trust in the federal government. Now, this has been demonstrated to be all just a fantasy. Uh, Watergate shows that the federal government may not be trusted, you know? There are, the people who become president may not be the best people, and they might engage in dirty tricks. Likewise, the economy becoming weak shows that other countries might undermine the U.S.'s authority, and they might enter into an economic downturn. Because that what gets into Ford's biggest problem. Go over one slide. It's inflation. Inflation starts going really high, but it's not acting as the way inflation typically does. Typically in economics, and I'm going to bore you with economics for just a second, inflation is seen as something that happens whenever demand is too high. Whenever demand is too high, inflation increases. However, that's not happening. Inflation is increasing, but unemployment is also increasing, which typically doesn't happen. Now, because unemployment is going up, the old answers for inflation don't work. Uh, generally, the way to um, help curve inflation is to raise interest rates. In raising interest rates, you retract the money supply, makes the money a little bit more rare, making the value of dollars go up. Inflation doesn't occur. However, that's not really an option because the economy is so bad. Unemployment is so bad that raising interest rates would actually hurt the economy and make things even worse. Now, that's not good for Ford because all the old answers don't work. And likewise, the U.S. is now competing in an international economy. So Ford comes up with his Whip Inflation Now plan, or WIN. He wants to encourage Americans to spend less and save more. By spending less money, this would make money become a little bit more rare. By saving more, it would cause inflation to go down. Uh, this goes against everything Americans have been told since 45. Remember, it's all about consumption. It's all about buying the newest and the greatest. You know, buy your big gas-guzzling land yacht. But now, Ford is saying things like maybe we should spend less. In addition, he says also to constrict the money supply, we should raise taxes by $5 billion. Now, all this put in conjunction goes over about as well as you might expect. The idea that we're going to raise taxes, but also I encourage you not to spend money, uh, that does not help the economy. In fact, this makes unemployment rise. It rises up to 9%. In addition, inflation is still going up, causing what's called stagflation. Uh, Ford does not come up with the term stagflation, but he is saddled with it. Uh, stagflation is a combination of stagnant wages and inflation. Inflation's well within the double digits. Uh, the interest rate goes up to like 21%, which is, which is horrible. It's a very high interest rate. And to make matters even worse, Ford does not exactly inspire confidence. Remember, he is not a charismatic leader, and now he's starting to look like a buffoon. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you'll see Ford falling down. He falls down quite a bit. He gets tripped up in dog leashes. He falls on a ski slope. He famously trips off the steps of Air Force One. He's looking very clumsy. And his clumsiness physically, which doesn't happen all that often, seems to be reflective of what's going on in the economy. Now, this is fodder for SNL. SNL is a new show. Go over one more. You'll see Saturday Night Live, which is a new show which is satirizing Ford mercilessly. Uh, Chevy Chase is the early star of SNL. He's the breakout performer. And he is pretty much what puts him on the map is his parody of Gerald Ford. In general, the country is feeling disillusioned. This is something I want to focus upon for a little bit. 
the 70s are known as a time of kind of fake. They're, it's known for being silly. It's not as strong as the 60s. Nobody's as idealistic as they were in the 60s. I mean, the civil rights movement does not completely go away. Other movements do not go away. I mean, gay rights get some of its highest uh, things in the 70s, so does women's rights, Chicano rights, same thing. But there's a general sense of unease. There's no sense of urgency. People are thinking maybe America's not as strong as it once was. Maybe America is disillusioned. Maybe America's not all that great. It's this combination of the economy going down and just the fallout from Watergate. Now, to make matters worse for Ford, it's an election year. It's 1976. Uh, he almost does not give the nomination. He's very unpopular. He's seen too much as a centrist by Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan, once again, he's the governor of California, former governor of California by this point. He is seen as very conservative. Now, Ford does indeed get the nomination, barely, mainly because he is indeed the incumbent, and generally incumbents win uh, nominations. So now we go on to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is a very interesting personality. He is the guy who becomes president in 76. Uh, he actually starts his run for the White House fairly early, in 1974, as a complete and total Washington outsider. Um, he's not involved in Watergate. He's not involved in Vietnam. He's not involved with any other blunders. He is a D.C. outsider. Now, this is a very popular and common refrain a lot of times with people running for president. The idea that they're an outsider, the idea that they're not uh, going to be just like the Washington establishment. Now, Carter has virtually no name recognition. He had been governor of Georgia. Uh, he was in the Navy before that. Actually, he famously does a UFO report. Uh, he marries his wife, Rosalind Carter. Uh, he is the governor of Georgia. He's the Democratic governor of Georgia, but he's a pro-civil rights Democrat. Uh, remember, most Southern Democrats are anti-civil rights. He is pro-civil rights. Uh, he claims that Georgia is, quote, too busy to hate. The idea that we're too busy making money, we're too busy growing our economy to be really plugged on, uh, you know, discriminating against black people. Now, this is part of a reflection of what's called the Sun Belt. I'm going to talk about the Sun Belt more when we talk about Reagan. But the South is doing pretty well. Uh, thanks to the introduction of, like, widespread air conditioning and the fact that the South does not have a lot of unions, uh, a lot of manufacturing does indeed move to the South, and the South is having a boom time. Uh, Carter is also the first quote-unquote born-again Christian to run for president. Uh, this reflects a change in evangelicalism, which I'll talk about extensively when we get into Reagan. He might seem overly pious. Some people said he sounded like a preacher. Uh, he's a strong Methodist. Actually, to this day, you can go to his Sunday school class in Plains, Georgia. Literally, if you go to his Sunday school class, I know people who've done this, you can listen to Jimmy Carter, give a Sunday school lesson, and afterwards he'll take a selfie with you. But you have to listen for his Sunday school. And he's still doing that, well into, like, I think he's 98 or something now. So Jimmy Carter's still alive, still doing that. Now, although he might seem overly pious, he seemed to be a good antidote for all the crazy going on. Um, yes, he might seem like a, a fuddy-duddy or a square or Ned Flanders, but, oh, Ned Flanders, y'all. That, that, that reference is probably too old for y'all. Um, a primo example of Carter doing this is an interview he does with Playboy magazine uh, during the uh, ramp-up to the campaign. Uh, you know, he's a Democratic nominee by this time period. Uh, he gives an interview with, with Playboy, 
in which they ask him straight up, have you ever cheated on your wife? You know, have you ever engaged in adultery? And remember, Jimmy Carter is a total, you know, he's a very square, very religious, very pious guy. So he gives an answer. He says, you know what? I've never cheated on my wife, but I have lusted in my heart over other women. I've never, never touched them, but I have, I have lusted in my heart. Which makes him seem like a total square, a total dud, but you know what? People actually liked it. They thought it was endearing. Now, what Carter is really depending upon to get him president is even though he knows the South is becoming disillusioned with the Democratic Party and was really going towards the Republican Party, he was hoping that there was still some old loyalty, some old name recognition for the Democratic Party, and he could win over the South. Now, like I said, Carter does not have a lot of national name recognition. Even when he gets the nomination, most people in the country don't know him. He just has a very efficient campaign that's able to get the candidates. Now, the election itself starts out in Carter's favor. It starts out in Carter's favor, but Ford is able to narrow the gap. By the time you get to the election, it's actually a coin flip. Uh, Ford could have won, which is interesting, mainly showing how the more people got to know Carter, maybe they thought he was too much of a square or not strong enough for the presidency. Uh, Carter does win, though, by carrying the South. He carries the South uh, 297 and Electoral College Lee, and Ford gets 240, but Carter gets the South. So even though Nixon gets the South in the previous election, Carter shows that maybe the Democratic Party isn't quite dead in the South quite yet. Now, as governor of Georgia, Carter does not have extensive foreign policy experience. Uh, he's akin to pretty much any other governor who becomes president. Uh, there's a lot of Woodrow Wilson in him, I'd say. There's quite a bit of Woodrow Wilson in Carter. If you go over one, you will see kind of Carter's general plan for foreign policy. He wants to assert what he calls human rights. He says human rights should be what's done for people across the world, not just people in the United States. Uh, that's his answer to the Cold War. Let's talk about human rights. He says America is a good country. We support the human rights of individuals, and we're going to help so. So his way of doing that is cutting aid. Uh, previous Republican, and not Republican, but just presidents in general, had donated a lot of money as part of the Truman Doctrine to otherwise not great regimes who were kind of brutal to their people. Uh, Carter does this. Uh, for instance, he does it in Africa, in places like Rhodesia, which has a white supremacist government. Uh, he does it in Uganda against Idi Amin, who's just brutal. And he also does it against apartheid in South Africa. He cuts aid uh, in terms of military and uh, police gear for South Africa. It's almost a version of moral diplomacy, which was used by Wilson. Probably the closest we ever gotten since then. Uh, Carter's greatest triumph, if you've ever won slide, is the Camp David Accords, which are signed between Egypt and Israel. Uh, this is interesting because Carter leans very heavily on his own Christianity for this. He's negotiating with a Muslim, and he's negotiating with a Jew uh, for Egypt and Israel. Uh, he brings Sadat and Bian to uh, Camp David. Now, Sadat is the president of Egypt. Bian is the president of the, well, the prime minister of, of Israel. Uh, they had had some wars before this. Uh, the Six Days War, Yom Kippur War, it all happened between Egypt and Israel. And basically, Carter is able to get them to recognize Israel's right to exist. Egypt, which is one of the largest uh, Arab countries, says, you know what? Israel can't exist. We will not challenge Israel's right to exist. In exchange, Israel gives back some territory, the Sinai Peninsula, which they had taken from Egypt in one of those wars. And to sweeten the deal, 
Carter gives everybody a lot of money. So foreign policy-wise, Carter's looking okay. The problem is, if you go over one slide, domestically things are getting worse. Uh, unemployment does get a little better, but inflation is still high. Interest rates go up very high. Uh, Carter is able to reduce the money supply to get rid of uh, inflation, which is going to work, but it just takes time. And further complicating things was the fact that energy in general was costing much more. Uh, the price of energy, heating and fueling, cars, stuff like that, is just going so much, Carter doesn't really have a good plan to deal with it. He doesn't indeed cre create the uh, Department of Energy to help out, but it seemed kind of folksy. You know, Carter does things like put solar panels on the roof of the White House, or suggested that Americans have the temperature at 68 in the winter and 78 in the summer. Uh, basically, you know, keep, keep the house cold in the winter and hot in the summer. Uh, wear sweaters. Uh, he starts wearing a cardigan all the time, basically saying that's going to help with energy. Likewise, he, he advises Americans against the ills of consumerism, which, almost like Ford, is not something you want the president exactly saying. It's good for a preacher, but for the president, it might seem kind of weak. This kind of comes into um, play in 1979 when Carter gives a speech. Now, this is almost called a sermon. He's pretty much preaching at America. You will, you will see the speech whenever you watch your videos. Uh, Carter, it's called the crisis of confidence speech. He says basically he's talking to this general sense of blasé or malaise in the nation about how things just don't seem that great. How America seems pretty bad. He says it's a, it's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue that America is going through this crisis of confidence. Now the speech is actually about energy saving and he actually does have a plan for energy saving but everybody remembers is the malaise portion which ironically... Carter never says the term malaise in the speech. It just becomes known as that. But Carter is tapping into something. It's been clear that for a while, since I started this lecture, America had been plagued by a sense that maybe America wasn't that good. Maybe America wasn't as good as it's once said. And that, at least since Watergate, but possibly earlier, America had been going through some problems. Now, as bad as it all is, go one over, one more, it's about to get worse for Carter. Uh, it has to do with Iran. Now, Iran is a long topic. Um, maybe one day I'll record another podcast about what all goes on in Iran, but what you need to know is this. The guy on the far right is the Shah. The Shah had been ruler of Iran, pretty much supreme leader of Iran, since 1953, when he's ever, whenever he is put in power. Uh, the CIA actually puts the Shah in power. He is installed by a CIA coup, and pretty much he has been leader of Iran for quite a while. Now, the Shah had done a pretty good job of modernizing the country. Iran, under the Shah, was fairly modern. There's a lot of rights for women. Um, he, the economy is doing pretty well. Uh, it has a pretty booming nuclear program, which is something Eisenhower gives to the Shah. But he had made enemies along the way. Uh, the Shah has the, the instinct that a lot of other people in America helped during the Cold War of being an otherwise brutal dictator whose saving grace is that they're not a communist. And the Shah is not very nice. He uses secret police. He is brutal. And he makes a lot of enemies, in particular within the more fundamentalist Muslim world. Uh, main enemy is the guy on the left, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is a fundamentalist Islamic preacher. And he actually flees the country because of the Shah. He is in exile because of the Shah. Now, this seems at odds with Carter, who's in the middle. Oh, yeah, if you go over one, you'll see the Shah. If you go over another one, you'll see Ayatollah. C 
Carter had made it his mission to not support human rights violators. Remember, that was his whole shtick, was we don't help countries that help human rights. And he cut aid. The problem is, he's still supporting the Shah. He believes that the Shah is necessary for oil production. He believes that the Shah is necessary for keeping the Middle East stable. He has religious reasons and stuff for doing it. Now, this opens Carter up for critics. A lot of people say he's hypocritical because he is cutting funding to some dictators, but he's still funding, like, a really bad one. And the Shah is known as a strong man. He's known as somebody who will be brutal to get what he wants. Uh, the problem is he is unable to outmuscle cancer. Uh, in 1978, secretly, the Shah finds out he has cancer, and he starts asking the U.S., please help me out. Please let me out of here. And he actually does leave the country in December of 78, go to the Mayo Clinic in the United States. Uh, he resigns his post, leaving a power vacuum. Now, when this power vacuum is out there, it is filled by a returning Ayatollah, who takes over and starts the Islamic Revolution. Uh, basically, they overturn the Shah's government. The Shah is out now. Beforehand, the Shah would have put them down, but now with the Shah out of country, and he's very sick, he actually eventually does indeed die of cancer, he is out of the picture. The Ayatollah and his revolutionaries can take over. Now, once he takes over, he starts talking bad about the United States, not just for supporting, supporting the Shah, but also for being a Western culture. Uh, he says that the United States is the quote-unquote great Satan. We're the ones that are causing immorality in the world. We're anti-religion, not just anti-Muslim, but we're against any religion. You know, uh, our decadence, our, the fact that we, you know, women expose themselves, or what they say expose themselves. Uh, we, don't, we don't have good morals, quote-unquote. We're the great Satan. And there's word, there's a rumor, that perhaps the Shah is faking the cancer thing. There's a rumor between in Ayatollah's um, ranks that maybe the Shah is coming back and the CIA is going to put him back in power. Now, this might seem like a crazy uh, conspiracy, but remember, he was put in power in the first place, the Shah was, by a CIA coup. So November of 1979, if you go over one slide, you will see that the revolutionaries rush the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They take 70 hostages. They, they overpower the embassy. They take the U.S. Uh, embassy workers hostage. A couple days later, they release the women and also the African-Americans, who they say are not as culpable as the white people are, the white men are, leaving 52 hostages. Now, Carter is blindsided by this. He does not expect this to come. He thought he was doing well by honoring the Shah's request to come to America for cancer treatment. He, Carter's really unable to do anything. He doesn't want to use military force. And to make matters worse, right about the same time this is all happening, the Russians invade, uh, invade uh, sorry, the Russians mount an invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, Carter finds this way too aggressive. This pretty much ends detente entirely. Uh, Russia is doing an overtly aggressive action against uh, Afghanistan. Carter warns the Kremlin that if they try to make a move against the Middle East, he's going to respond with military force. Uh, it seems kind of empty because it's Carter, and Carter seems unwilling to use military force. But it's showing that the old messages methods won't work. The United States is not as strong as it was before Watergate. Uh, he does cut aid to the Russians. Most famously, he boycotts the Olympics. Uh, U.S. athletes do not participate in the 1980 uh, Olympics, which is in Moscow. Four years later, in 84, the Russians don't participate in the U.S. Olympics in Los Angeles. 
And to make matters worse, it's an election year. It's 1980. And all throughout 1980, the, uh, the Iranians are coming on TV and taunting Carter with the hostages. He's unable to really do anything about it. He, he tried to do economic sanctions against the Iranians. Doesn't really work out. Uh, likewise, he tries to do a spec ops mission, Operation Eagle Claw. Go over one slide, you will see the aftermath. It doesn't work. About eight soldiers die, the helicopters crash. It's not good for the country. It makes the United States look weak. It makes the Iranians look strong. It looks, makes it look like the Iranians have divine help or something. And Carter is looking towards the election with things looking pretty grim. Very grim, to be honest. Carter is... He's running. He gets the nomination. But a lot of Americans are feeling down about America in general. There's a sense of malaise, a sense of just blah, that maybe America is a very disillusioning place. Maybe all the things we believed about America didn't come to pass. And that's what you should be thinking about as you write your responses for this. Why does Watergate last so long? You know, this kind of, this kind of viewpoint that Watergate happens and it's just kind of blech, it never really goes away. Why is that the case? Why, I mean, is it tapping in, would the malaise have happened without Watergate, or is it just something that really taps into something essential about how Americans understand the United States and disillusionment? Um, so with that, that will do it for today's podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, discussion leaders, pick yourselves.